So I'm going to open the scriptures in a second, but before we do, I think it's good to pray. If you're talking about spiritual warfare, it's a little bit like driving a motorcycle at high speed. You need to wear a helmet. When you're opening up this topic, the enemy is going to not be happy because you're opening up his plans to undermine God's plans. So let's pray, brothers and sisters. Father, I just want to just, first of all, ask your protection. Ask your protection corporately over Reality San Francisco this morning in this particular service here on Sunday morning. I want to pray your protection over me as I speak. I want to pray your protection over every individual person in here. In Jesus' name, I want to pray your protection and I want to pray a binding prayer against the powers and principalities that operate in this world, particularly the powers and principalities over this particular city. They have been defeated, humiliated on the cross. You are the Lord of victory, so we proclaim that victory now in your name, Jesus. I particularly want to pray for the battle that occurs between spirit and flesh. And so, Father, I bind the flesh. I bind those things in us which are opposed to what you want to do, our desires which are disordered. We bind them right now in every individual in this place. And, Father, we call out your spirit to speak to our spirits. Quieten us now, Father, so your word may speak. Amen. I thought I felt the spirit moving, but it's a... It's a... The spirit is moving, but yeah. So let's open the scriptures. We're going to look at the book of Galatians. We're going to look at chapter 4. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 21. I'm glad I'm not wearing a skirt. (laughs) I'd be doing this. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh... But his son, Fry, the free woman, was born as accord, according to the results of a divine promise. Two children, one born under the flesh, not talking about bodies here, not talking about matter, talking about that which opposes God. Which is not just out there in that group of people we don't like and get frustrated about their tweets online, but in you. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line dividing good and evil doesn't run between that group or this group, but divides the human heart. So two concepts. The second one, the freedom that comes through faith, which is beyond the restrictions of the flesh, which is about the autonomy of human beings. This divine promise. So we have this differential being set up. These things are being taken figuratively. So Paul is using this as an example to explain a bigger point, the story of Abraham's children. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who were to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. An actual geographic city filled with people, which is visible, which you can see, but it's under the slavery 
And yes, at this time, it's under the slavery of the Roman Empire, a foreign occupying force who has come in and taken over that city, crucifying people, putting people in prisons, oppressing them literally and militarily and politically, but under an even more devastating oppression, the oppression of the flesh. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of who has a husband. So two cities. One you actually see that's tangible, that's physical, that people who understood Jerusalem, the Jews in different parts of the Greco-Roman war at this time would come back on pilgrimage to go to the temple. They would see that actual city. But then there's another city. The city above. Now, this isn't some two-dimensional thing. This isn't Harry Potter. This isn't going to the station and running through a wall and entering into some other magical realm. This is not the Matrix taking a second pill. This is a profound spiritual idea that above certain things, then there is the potential of what God wants for them. The spirit that he wants to call out. Not a division between flesh and, 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 and matter as flesh and then the weird sort of supernatural realm. There's elements of, of that here, but this is a division where above Jerusalem, there's another Jerusalem of who Jerusalem could be. Born of a promise, who in, like a woman who cannot give birth, actually one day will give birth to something greater. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. At that time, the son was born according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. The flesh persecutes the Spirit. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. A battle between spirit and flesh that was true in the Old Testament that Paul's using figuratively and is true today. That's happening now. It was happening when you went and got your coffee on the way here. That was happening on a day with a beautiful temperature that's just right. Well, there's no tanks in the streets. There's no explosions in this city. But there actually is a spiritual battle of which you are in the midst of. And this spiritual battle is so easy to miss because of the particular time and place that we live in. Particularly easy to miss in a city like San Francisco. In a city which, like my city, is described as one of these hubs that are growing up around the world, these sort of sim, sim, you know, symbolic of where the culture seems to be growing globally, or at least that's what we're told. And so cities like mine and yours are called secular. What does secularism mean? In 1968, the English missionary thinker, Leslie Newbigin, set out where he thought secularism would go. And he had this whole map. 
And I believe it has something to say to us today. And what it says, his basic theory was this, that there's, a sense, four stages of secularism. The first stage is that in a weird, strange way, when Christ comes into the world, he comes into a world where people feel oppressed by spiritual forces, they feel oppressed by gods everywhere. The Roman Empire is a place where you have to give allegiance to gods. And the first insult that is given to the Christians when Christ comes defeats the principalities and powers, whose followers then don't bend a knee to the gods of Rome, the first accusation at them was that they were atheists. Weirdly, Newbegin says, the Christians begin the process of secularization. The old gods, which dominated everything with left people in fear, no longer had the power now that Christ had defeated them. And this new concept of religion comes into the world. Peter Brown, in his book on late antiquity, says that there was a religious water change that happened at that time. Now, he's a historian. He's marking what happens in the visible. I believe something happens in the spiritual. The second phase of secularism then is this world that is created where because of the gospel is not something that you can then enforce on people through might and the church gets this wrong at times but eventually gets to this point where in the West, in the United States, in the British Commonwealth system, in France, this idea of freedom of religion, where the cultures come from a Christian roots, but is going to allow people to practice religion and not compel them to believe something. And so Roger Williams in Rhode Island starts this idea of religious freedom. Oliver Cromwell in England, the Puritan, very strict, stringent guy, the guy banned Christmas because he thought it was pagan, not someone you want to invite over for a party, but allows Jews to worship freely, allows the printing of the Quran, not because he believes in those things or believes that it's all true, but he does not want to compel other people to believe something because people are compelled into Christianity through Christ. So, this is the stage which so much of the West in the last 50, 60 years has been experiencing. Religious freedom but underneath that, this sense of religion still matters. Third stage, Newbegin said, would that be we'd be a danger? And he saw this in his life breaking out in the 1960s that we would start to forget that underneath reality of religion being a, a, a thing. Instead, we would just look to a completely religionless secularism and this would start to slowly drain the meaning out of life. You would have unlimited freedom to do what you want to do, but meaning and freedom are not always best friends. Sometimes you have to downgrade your freedom and accept limitations and commitments to have meaning. But we chose unlimited freedom. And what Newbegin predicted was that when we ran then into a secularism without any meaning, we would end up, in a sense, oppressing ourselves. And so the flesh in that time then, in its battle 
against what Christ wants to do, it's insurgency, it's asymmetrical war, it's guerrilla campaign against Christ's victory, actually is pushed against the individual. The culture and the mythology of the culture and the powers and principalities say, I don't think that's going to be enough. Actually says to people, I've got two, it's all right. Says to people, you've got it all. You have it all. There's all these jobs before you. In a city like San Francisco where there's so many exciting things happening, you sit in a coffee shop and someone's talking about some exciting startup next to you. You seem to be at this cultural crux, at this axial moment of the digital revolution. You seem to be in a city which is incredibly culturally vibrant. So many things to do, so many places to eat. Where am I going to go tonight? The sexual smorgasbord is open, digitized, put in your pocket. You don't even have to do any work anymore. Dating, what the heck is that? Swipe, swipe, swipe. <laughs> We've got like, a, a, a world of Uber drivers driving you where you want to go. Oh, he's five minutes away. <sighs> <laughs> and so what happens in this is Byung-Chul Han, the Korean-German sociologist, says that in the past, in old societies, people were oppressed by people telling them what to do. Don't do that. You can't do that. Because you're that person, you have to stay over here. But he says, in our culture, we've moved to an achievement society where we're oppressed by what we ought to be doing. So it's not going to be the secret police in leather jackets hauling you off to the gulag. It's going to be your friend on Instagram whose life seems so amazing. It's going to be your Fitbit. And so it's like the way in which we take signing up for a new app and there's all of that, that, that preamble and legal stuff. Who reads it? I don't. Yes, because I'm willing to submit myself to this new oppression of the unlimitedness. And your flesh wants that. Your flesh is disordered desires. I want that. I want more. I want more. I want more. But you are a limited human being. You're mortal. You just died a bit more since worship began. <laughs> You're older. You're actually less attractive than you were yesterday. <laughs> and so, there's not people out there, Stalinist commissars, looking over your shoulder, you're oppressed by what you ought to be doing. And so, in this time, and I believe that particularly this phase of secularism becomes most strongest when the Berlin Wall falls in 1989, the world seems to enter this unlimited time where Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Fed, said that we were going to enter into a time of unlimited economic growth. We had apparently moved into a time which people were predicting a conflict-free era. The internet promises a utopia. I've got books in my garage written at that time 
which predicted that when the internet arrives, it will just bring people together and no one will fight anymore. <laughs> and everyone just will come together in this common family. That didn't happen. And so, for Christians in this time, what happens is, if you want to do a church in a city like yours or mine, you put your church there because there's a lot of people moving to a city like that. They've got their mum in their ear. You're going to go to church. That's fine. Take that job. You're going to go to church. Some of you have got that person. Grandparents. If you're Korean, you know what I'm talking about. And they're like, are you going to go to church? Are you going to do this stuff? So then you come and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, where am I going to find a church? It's not like the church or college ministry they had growing up. So you come to a place like San Francisco and then all of a sudden you find a church. And to do a church, you've just got to put on a service at this stage. And I'm not having a go at this, as we say in Australia, critiquing it. Because this was my church was like for a long time. If you have some beautiful graphics, like I like the font. I will sign up. What's their doctrine? I don't know, but the, the font was fantastic. <laughs> and if the music's okay and the preaching's good and you've got some community events, you're golden. But then comes stage four. Stage four, you begin predicted, would be that the meaninglessness of unlimited freedom would mean that the religious spirit in us, what John Calvin called the seed of religion, which is in all of us, eternity in our hearts, it needs to go in some direction. Despite what we're told about secularism, we actually are religious, theocentric beings. So there's no neutral place. You can't park that spirit. And what Newbegin said would be that stage four would be a return to the political religions. So you've seen in the last couple of years, three, four years, like, has the world gone mad? No, no, no. We'll just return to what we've always been like. And the mythology of this bubble time, which is like the hipster coffee shop, which everything's sleek, modernism, some little industrial edges, a cool barista who's sort of friendly to you. <laughs> and if you're Australian, constantly write your name as Mike instead of Mark. I once got Mork, like M-O-C-K. Um, that they operate as like these little hub, you know, bubbles of a future sort of embassy of where we think the whole culture's going, but it's a mythology and it cannot answer the questions of inequality, particularly the one that we've forgotten about and dare not speak its name, economic inequality. And so that tension could not hold. And so people who left behind racial inequality, global inequality, this is going global. And so it's not just America that's in this moment of tension and talking to people here saying the world, you know, America is so divided at the moment. The world is so divided at the moment. Taking down racist statues, where? In Ghana. Of who? Gandhi. Because people discovered what he wrote about African people. 
and saying, we need to take these statues down. This is the paraphrase of the movement that wants to take down Gandhi's statues in Ghana. We want to take these racist statues down because they remind us of an oppressive past, and we want to hold back the global hegemony of the rising superpower, India. Not in America. Sound familiar? Or the rising new far right of young men who are reconnecting with fascism. Where? Against immigrants. Where? In Mongolia. There is a growing neo-Nazi movement in Mongolia against Chinese immigrants. Now, because I'm a freak and I'm obsessed by this stuff, I could now go for two hours with thousands of more options, you know, examples of this. But I won't. Something is happening globally. When you go to the political religions, the political religions are shaped by the religious heart of man, which wants to have clear boundaries which wants to have temples which people can go into or not go into, lines of who is in, who's out. The sacred comes back. And flags. And borders. And bubbles get re-infused with religious architecture. Why? Because we are always religious. And so, in this time, some of you find yourself living in this moment of confusion, the overlapping of stage three and four of secularism. And it's going to affect us in different ways. And spiritual warfare looks different in these two stages. Some of you in this room are in what I call the posture of stage three. The posture of stage three where you're said, the world's your oyster, unlimited freedom, because you're being oppressed by possibilities, you are sitting here beating yourself up. You've moved into the posture of, you're sitting there, you're passive, you're consuming. And I'm not saying that to critique you. You're actually hurting because the options are too broad. And you're comparing yourself to other people. And no one wants to talk about this because pain is shame in this world. And we offer this curated, shiny, happy version of our lives, whether it's online or just who we are in person. And as a pastor, I'm continually having to deal with the fact of people who are meant to be peers, even people in community groups, who are saying lovely things to each other, but overtaken with envy, jealousy, and self-hatred. So in that moment, the spiritual battle that you're in is against your own flesh. And that one of the ways that God deals with the flesh and Paul speaks of this so profoundly, is to actually allow you to encounter limits. So when you don't get that job, I'm not saying God calls that, but then there's a chance to understand that you're not always going to get what you want. When life's going well and you get that illness, when that relationship breaks up, 
When you're overtaken by the epidemic of our age anxiety, that is a red light going in your internal world. And you can turn it on yourself, the anger, or go, no, hang on, this culture of the third world is actually a culture and an environment that's set against me. And so am I going to continue with running for unlimited freedom, or am I going to continue to turn back into Christ who helps me find perfection in weakness, power in weakness, strength in weakness, meaning in weakness. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. And through those things, which I'm not saying God calls, as C.S. Lewis said, God is speaking to you loudest through your pain. And we can, in our culture, we can talk about sex, we can say this on television, say that, But the real taboo of our time is death and suffering. So people download podcasts of murder stories now and listen to them because it's become so foreign and strange that people like you could actually die. For the people then who find themselves overlapping into stage four, you may feel yourself being moving from a posture of passivity, and maybe you're never able to sit there because of your circumstances and who you are and where you've come from. So there's this temptation then to stand forward and seemingly be switched on, not switched off like the person sitting there. But because you've got the flesh in you, there's gonna be this complete mess in you of righteous anger but a cocktail sometimes mixed with hate, sometimes mixed with frustration, sometimes mixed with a sense that the messianic purpose is on you to change the world. And when we use the word progressive, what we mean by that is actually the idea of a post-Christianity which moves towards Christian goals, but without Christ. The kingdom without the king. And many of those goals look the same when people talk about, I want a future of where there's no poor, where there's no inequality. All of that comes from a Christian imagination. If you're in a karmic system or a culture which is about karma and there's someone who's homeless or someone who gets multiple sclerosis, that's because something happened in their past. So we take the idea that we created in the Imago Day, the image of God, that we're children of God, that we're given a purpose, that we're stewards of creation. We take that But at the same time, we want to hold on to the serpent's promise. What if you were like God's? And so how you fight in this moment then becomes absolutely crucial. Because if you're looking for the good people in that group, or in that group, or in that cause, there may be truth in there, but it's far more nuanced than MSNBC or Fox or Breitbart or CNN or whoever wants to put the world into these simplistic blocks of us versus them, the biblical understanding is so much more nuanced. It's that every one of us has flesh and spirit. Every cause has flesh and spirit. Look for where flesh and spirit is at battle and go with the spirit. 
And so for a church like yours and a church like mine, I realize now we cannot just be the church that allows people in a city like this to come and have a breather from secularism, from all the people who don't follow your ethics at work, to have a coffee before you come in, exhale, and then enter back in the world for a week for our little fix. This now becomes an embassy of the kingdom of God at this moment engaged in a battle between flesh and spirit. If you're here this morning and you're sitting here and you're switched off, you need to switch on. In a war, there's no passengers. In a war, there's no sitting back and simply watching the battle. You are in a heavenly army. You have enlisted when you bowed your knee to Christ and you're at the front line. Do not be lulled into a false sense of security. And so, how do we then wage war in a time like this? Well, one of the first ways that we wage war is we go in the opposite spirit. If you are anxious, and I speak as someone who has deeply battled this, I was diagnosed in 2010 with bipolarity, this is my constant daily wrestle. You become what Edward Friedman called a non-anxious presence, which is a healing presence in an anxious environment which brings healing to other people, but you can only do that through becoming more Christ-like. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling jealousy about someone in this room, if you're feeling envy, if you're feeling hopelessness, the prayer on your lips, the sword in your hand is actually to go in the opposite spirit. Corporately, in an America that's becoming increasingly divided, a church of very different people coming together in unity is a spiritual weapon. It's a way of shaming the powers and the principalities of the day. You need to go in the opposite spirit. Move towards Christ-likeness. The second thing you need to do is that if the dividing line between right and wrong, good and evil, is not between that group, and we always just want to put it out there, never in here, if it's between flesh and spirit, if it's a line down the human heart, you need to realize that you are part of the insurgency against what God is doing. You need to realize that you have the potential of being a traitor through the flesh inside of yourself. You need to then bow your knee before Christ and give him every desire which goes against his way. No longer holding a little part of your life. My money, my sex life, my will, my fear of commitment, my anger, my past, my pain, that is fertile soil for the enemy to launch a counterinsurgency against God's victory on the cross. And that's in you, it's in me. As a pastor, the best way I can lead is to die to myself. As a leader, Leadership is the act of dying to self in public. You are called to die to yourself at your work, in your marriage, in your family, in your singleness. 
And when you die to self, it wipes out the potential for the enemy to have bases to fight back. This church, if you have come and you have an agenda that seems right, that seems just in your head, and there's some way that you want to push that into, your, into this church, you have to put that on the altar. Maybe it's right, maybe it's prophetic, maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually totally right, but your flesh is wrapped up in it. And you're going to mess that thing up because of your flesh. I feel very strongly this morning that there needs to be some agendas, which may be right. But is it the right timing? Is that what God's calling you to? That they need to be put down on the ground. Spiritual warfare is one through spiritual disciplines. As Terry Walling says. That can seem strange. We're used to war being kinetic and bombs and explosions and running at the enemy. And to say in this age of outrage, that's the disciplines, and that seems like it's some sort of stepping back, could almost seem like it's sitting down. Actually, no, it's going the opposite spirit because then the spiritual disciplines are what moves my flesh away from me, amplifies the spirit in me. Spiritual warfare is fought by spiritual disciplines. And lastly, if you are looking for meaning, if you are someone who has run into freedom and you're just exhausted by it, if you have more things to go to than you can possibly fit into a calendar week, more people to see. Meaning is not found in endless freedom. Meaning is found in the battle. Humans are born to struggle. We are born at the moment between Jesus' resurrection and his return, and this is a mopping up operation against the guerrilla insurgent forces of the enemy that want to take a city like this and rob it of its inheritance, named after a saint of peace, and turn it into something else. You are actually here sovereignly at this moment. Your job, your relationships, your individual feelings are all secondary to the great meaning that is found in this battle. Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, David and Goliath, that during the Blitz of Britain, when London was completely surrounded by the German forces, when literally bombs were raining down, people had to run and hide in shelters at night, help each other out, rebuild buildings, when community divisions disappeared because people were united by a common enemy. When the Blitz ended and the war was over, people missed it. Why? Because meaning is found in the battles. The city wants to divide you. The spirit of the age, the principalities over this place wants to divide you. The guerrilla insurgency against God's good order wants to pull you apart, pull you out of the fight. And this morning, God is saying clearly, no more.
Some of you this morning, you're enlisting. Those of you sitting back in passivity this morning, this is the time to serve and stand up and sign away to join in God's army. Some of you have been sitting on the edge for a long time. This morning, no more. You've been sitting there holding onto your will. Give it to God. Give it to God. Others just need God to put his arms around you. You're wrapped in anxiety at this moment, and you just need to hear God put his arms around you and say, do not have fear. Do not have fear. I particularly sense this morning that there is a group of young women in this church who have overcome with anxiety, and you need to stop hiding that and stop projecting an image to the world and instead share in this together and start talking. Start meeting, start praying, give each other this sense of anxiety that you're struggling with and form a common bond, a military unit to fight this battle to then bring hope to others in this city who are undergoing the oppression of anxiety. I feel, Father, saying this morning that there's a sense when I said that agenda thing, it's coming back strongly that literally this morning, some of you have to come and be prayed for and put down some of the agendas that you have. That reality should head in this direction, that that should happen. Even if you're someone up the back or you're a leader, it's time to put your agenda down and put it on that thing. If it is what God meant to do, he will allow that to be shown, but put it down so he can cut off the flesh and amplify the spirit. I have a very real sense, just as we end up, that there is stuff some people have in this room with each other, that the enemy is just loving because he wants to bring a spirit of division, a house divided. And that through repentance, the enemy is destroyed. I've got like 20 seconds, I'm not even gonna tell this story, but my church was profoundly changed and fighting spiritual principalities in my city when God led me to repent to my staff, to my wife, to my church, that I had been that person sitting back, switched off, not in battle. And when I stood up and I stood forward, something spiritually changed. Reality San Francisco cannot be, my church cannot be churches where, hey, let's just gather, cool graphics, nice people, here's lunch. Reality San Francisco, in the new stage in which culture is going to, can only be a church on fire for God when a move of repentance happens and there's a pile of flesh left here after the service, God is asking you that today. He is saying, no more. No more taking that out that door. It gets left in here at the foot of the cross. I'm going to pray. The sermon turned out very different than what I thought it was when I went over it this morning. <laughs> Jesus, you seem to be doing something at this moment. No, it's not seems. It's obvious. Father, you're revealing that you cannot anymore bear with the flesh in us. So, Father, 
we give that flesh to you. I particularly want to pray for those who feel at this moment oppressed by anxiety. They're hurting Jesus. You love them. I pray against condemnation. I pray against self-hatred. I pray against mental processes which are hurt and broken and negative. And Jesus, I pray for soundness of mind. But I also want to pray a freedom from the oppression of thinking no one else is going through this. Father, create a sisterhood in this church. There's also some guys too. There are people here that need to give that to you. Secondly, Father, we give you our agendas. We give you our agendas. Jesus, take them. May what is from you rise. May what is not from you fall. Father, I want to pray for people who are switched off. I want to pray, Father, that they switch on, that they begin to see the world as you see it, not through the visible, but the invisible spiritual battle that's going on. Give them heavenly insight to open their eyes and be your soldiers, to put your battle and your wonderful campaign that will lead to the world being remade, heaven and earth kissing, every tear wiped away. So Jesus, in this time now, Spirit, do your thing. I have a deep sense that you need to really do some work right now, Jesus. And they're at an axial point. So Spirit, come now, speak to hearts. Let us not be people who divide, have a foot in two camps. Not let there be any bad blood in this church. In the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Spirit, we pray for a healing unity that confounds the enemy. No more bridgeheads for the enemy to work, Jesus. We cast them out. And so I pray against the powers and principalities of this city, a belief in human ability without you, Jesus, we give ourselves fully to you right now. In your name, amen.